this morning, we're going to begin a new study, verse by verse study, through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Whenever we start a new book, there's always an air of excitement, um, personally for me. Uh, I hope you feel the same. There's so much I think we're going to see here. And Mark is one of those Gospels that I've not really studied much in the past. Um, I've gone through people's commentaries and things and uh, over the years, but typically... We often go to Matthew because Matthew gives us a lot of details about certain things. Um, And particularly things like Matthew 24 we're familiar with. It gives us a lot of information about uh, the end times, the tribulation, and so on. You know, we go to Luke's gospel because, again, Luke gives us great narrative, particularly regarding um, the nativity. um, And then later about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem um, and Israel's eyes being blinded. And So there's lots of kind of key passages in those Gospels. And of course, John's Gospel, just such a wonderful account because it's so personal. Um, and, and that last half of the Gospel, John spends the same, uh, the first three and a half years of Jesus' ministry, effectively, um, are spent uh, in the first half of John's Gospel, the last week in the last half of the Gospel. So it's very detailed. We get a lot of information um, that John gives us. Um, and so Mark often, for me personally, has been one of those Gospels that I've not tended to, to go to, you know, if I'm looking for a particular text. I tend to go for, for the others. And, and, and in a sense, that's doing Mark a disservice, because as we're going to see, there's a huge amount here. In fact, uh, it's been said that if you compare Matthew and Mark's Gospel, uh, Mark actually gives us more information than Matthew does. It's just that Mark gives it in a different way. It's lots of snapshots and things as we go through. So we'll talk more in a minute, but let's, uh, let's bow our hearts and just commit this morning and this study into the Lord's hands, shall we? Father, we just thank you for your word. And Lord, all of it is rich. Lord, all of it is able to divide between the flesh and the spirit. Lord, your word says that it is living and powerful. Lord, it can show us the difference between the carnal nature and the spiritual life. And Father, this morning we pray that you would start again that division. As we look at these... Uh, teachings, these lessons that Mark has for us, that he was so uh, keen on recording that the body of Christ would be edified by these things. Lord, I pray that like a master surgeon, you would begin, Lord, even a fresh work in us to cut away the things of this world, to give us a deeper, greater love for you. Lord, help us, Jesus, to see you more clearly as we go through this study over the coming weeks, Lord. And if you tarry and we are able to get to the end of this this study before you return, then, Lord, use this entire study just to equip us and strengthen us, Lord, for all that you have planned for us, Lord, all the opportunities you'll present for us to speak to others. Lord, as Mark presents this gospel, this good news to us, Lord, may we take these things and share them with others also. And so for this morning, Lord, just open our eyes spiritually, we pray. Stir our hearts. May we not leave as we've come in. Lord, leave more excited about who you are. So we just commit all of this to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so what we're going to look at in this session, we're going to talk a little bit about who John Mark is, just to introduce the character, the person that's given us this record. Uh, We'll just spend a little while just talking a little bit about the time of writing, because that is significant. Uh, We'll talk about the good news that Mark has given the world. Um, And it is really wonderful, the things he records for us. And then we'll comment as well about the deliberate design, and then we're going to go in and see if we can look at uh, the first chapter of this morning in our study. So first of all, who is, who was John Mark? Well, We know that he was a a young man, and seemingly as we go into this gospel, we find that he's totally overwhelmed by Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You know, this is a great presentation of Jesus. Uh, And and it's been said that, you know, the gospels aren't just a, a philosophy. You know, they're not something that we've been given to uh, just give us some interesting insights or, or whatever. This is all about Jesus. And this is what Mark wants to present. It seems as we go through that Mark was just so amazed and impressed by the person of Jesus that he wants to write this down. And we'll talk more as we go through about that. But Mark, we see, his life has been totally transformed by Jesus. And he wants to tell the world about it. You know, and interestingly, we're going to be looking on Thursday about how to, uh, or ways that we can evangelize, witness to those that are close to us. Mark seemingly becomes a really good springboard for that. 
because he had just this burden to tell people about Jesus. Not all the religious kind of things that people often think about when we talk about evangelism. You know, not any of the the things that the world often objects to, but this is just a heart that is so overflowing that he can't but help tell you about Jesus. Now, we do know that Mark came from a wealthy family. He had a, a love and fascination for Scripture, and we're going to see that come out a number of times as we go through the study. What's the first mention of John Mark? Well, we actually find it, uh, often many will point to Acts chapter 12. Um, and uh, certainly we'll look at that. But we seem to encounter Mark earlier in Scripture as a young boy. Now, in Mark 14, we get this account. Um, this is of the, uh, the time of the, the end of the week leading up to the crucifixion as they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Mark records this for us. And one of them that stood by drew a sword. Now, we know later that this is Peter. And smote a servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, Mark's recording this, and we'll, we'll talk in a moment about Peter's connection with this gospel. Um, and, and again, we'll talk about the timing. But it's interesting that Mark knew full well who this individual was, but chooses not to mention. And that would be a good indication that Mark is writing this at a time that had he have highlighted that Peter was the one that did this, Peter could have got in trouble. So it, it suggests, it's a good testimony to the fact that this was very early, a uh, very early account of these things, and that the people still affected by these things were still alive at the time that Mark writes this. But it goes on, and Jesus answered and said unto them, Are you come out as against a thief with swords and with staves to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you took me not. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. And they all forsook him and fled, and there followed him a certain young man. And Mark is the only one that records this. Having a linen cloth cast about his naked body, and the young men laid hold on him, and it was, he just makes this kind of bid for escape, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Now, many commentators believe that this individual was John Mark himself, that he'd already become uh, a kind of a follower of Jesus, just out of curiosity, following the, the disciples around, even at this very early stage. In Whitecliffe Bible Commentary, they just say this. It's often been suggested, perhaps correctly, that Mark was making a veiled reference to himself. There seems to be no other reason why this insignificant event was included. Uh, it's interesting. You know, and there's a number of other commentators that, that make a, a similar uh, connection here. <laughs> we then see John Mark in another pivotal moment of his life. Uh, now, this is the one that people often refer to, and this is obviously clearly laid down for us in Scripture. Um, this is in Mark. Uh, let's go back to look at that Scripture. Um, if you turn to Acts chapter 12, and this is the occasion, if you remember, that Peter has been imprisoned, and miraculously, an angel leads Peter out of the prison in the middle of the night, and we just pick up from Acts chapter 12, verse 1. Now, about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread, the time of the Passover. And when he had uh, apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four uh, quaternions of soldiers uh, to keep him intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Some people suggest that's a mistranslation. It's not. It's correct. They still had this celebration of Easter uh, back then, and it was that time. Peter, therefore, was kept in prison, uh, but prayer was made without ceasing. I love that. The, the early church recognizing that they're powerless in this situation except for prayer. And, of course, how powerful prayer is. The prayer prays without ceasing unto God for him. And when Herod would have brought him forth the same night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. And the keepers before the door kept the prison. So he's bound to, to uh, other guards, and then there's people at the door guarding the door. But we read in verse 7, Behold, an angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shining in the prison, and he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly. And his chains fell off from his hands. And the angel said unto him, Gird thyself and bind thy sandals. And so he did. And he said unto him, Cast thy garment about thee and follow me. 
And he went out and followed him and wished not that it was true, which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. This is just such an incredible thing. The guards seemingly all stay asleep, and Peter suddenly kind of slapped by this angel and said, come on, get up. Thinks it's just a dream. But when they were past the first and second war, they came unto the iron gate that leads unto the city, which opened unto them of his own accord. And they went down and passed on through the street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. And when Peter was come to himself, in other words, he's like, oh, this, is, this is really happening, this is true. This isn't just a dream. He said, now I know of a surety that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from the expectation of the people of the Jews. And when he considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John. Now this is John Mark. Okay, we're told, John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. This is the early church. This is right just after the resurrection, the crucifixion, the resurrection. The church has gone through the, the time of, uh, of Pentecost, the, the birth of the church. It's growing, and the church is meeting from house to house. They're fellowshipping. And John Mark's mother, Mary, clearly is fairly wealthy. She has this large abode, and the church is meeting there. And they've been at this place praying. Okay, so this is the family that, that we're kind of given a glimpse into here that John comes from. Clearly, again, saturated by Jesus, the life of Jesus, all that had, had gone on. And so we read <coughs> that they were gathered together praying, verse 13, as uh, Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel came to hearken named Rhoda, or in the English it would be Rose, and when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. And they said unto her, and I, I love this, this is great, because this is just us, isn't it? Thou art mad. He said, Peter's outside. You know the one we've been praying for. Don't be silly, they say. But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. Then said they, it is his angel. He, you know, basically, he must have died. And, uh, you know, he's seeing a vision. But Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened the door, they saw him and were astonished. Isn't that incredible? They're praying without ceasing that God would do some sort of miracle here. And they don't have the faith to believe that he's at the door. And I like that because sometimes we make this whole idea that, you know, we need to have really great faith if we're going to see God answer our prayers. No, no, we need little faith in a great God. That's all it takes. It's God who's great. God who's the one that does these miracles and these incredible things. You know, and it's right and it's proper to pray. But even their prayers, they were surprised that God answered them in the way he did. But he beckoning unto them, um, with his hands to hold his peace, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. He said, go show these things unto James and to the brethren. And he goes off from there. So this is the first time we meet John Mark in Scripture. Now, there is another illusion that some commentators refer to, uh, and it's in Mark chapter 7, because again, he's the only one that records this particular point. In Mark chapter, sorry, Mark chapter 10, 17 to 22, we get the account of the rich young ruler. Remember that went up to Jesus. And we know that Mark was from a wealthy family, and there's a number of other references. But Mark includes something that none of the other gospel writers include. And that is that Jesus looked upon him and loved him. This is this rich young ruler who goes away despondent. And again, a number of commentators suggest that that also is very likely to have been Mark. Because the comment itself is not one that really a third party could make. Because... The idea here that this individual recognized that Jesus loved him really could only be said by that individual themselves. So a number of commentators suggest that also is a, another glimpse we have of John Mark. Whatever the case, we know for a fact that he was in and around the Christian church from a very early time, seeing all of these things. Now, <clears throat> we also discover that Mark was the nephew of Barnabas. Now, Acts chapter 15 records this famous tension between Paul and Barnabas when they want to take Mark on their secondary, second missionary trip. Mark had previously gone with them on the first missionary trip they'd gone on. But partway through, Mark had, had left. He'd gone back seemingly to Jerusalem. Now, it was not easy. They were going to a very hostile territory. There was a chance of being mugged or robbed, and they were certainly going to a place where they weren't welcome. And for whatever reason, on that first trip, Mark decides that he doesn't want to go. It's too much. He gets to a certain point and leaves them. Now, Barnabas, of course, this is family. 
Whereas Paul makes a decision, no, no, I'm not taking somebody that's going to quit partway through. And there's this, this kind of debate about who was right, who was wrong. We just read in Acts chapter 15, verse 36 onwards. Uh, and some days after, Paul said unto Barnabas, let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. But Paul thought not good to take him with them, who departed from them, uh, from Pamphylia, and went not with them to the work. So that's the first occasion when he left them. And the contention was so sharp between them, between Paul and Barnabas, that they departed asunder one from the other. So Barnabas took Mark and sailed unto Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas, and departing, being recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God. Now, who was right, who was wrong? It's one of those kind of long and age-old debates. And, and probably the truth of the matter is that they were both right, uh, and maybe there's an element where they were both wrong. Uh, maybe they could have shown more grace to each other in this particular situation. But I think that there is an element here where those that are weaker need to have the Barnabases around them to encourage them and help them. But also there is a work to do. you know, And we need to be um, steadfast in that work. You know, this isn't something we can go part way and quit. So I understand Paul's mindset. And Paul, I think, was right to do what he did. But I also think Barnabas was absolutely right to then put his arm around John Mark and encourage him. Now, there's a, a lovely end to this account because later we find uh, in Timothy that Paul will say when he's in prison in Rome, bring Mark because he's useful to me. So something happens. Something seemingly from this point where there's a separation to later on when suddenly Paul makes the comment that actually, no, bring Mark. Mark is actually really helpful to me in the ministry. Just an interesting aside as well regarding ministry. There's actually five words in the New Testament that are translated at various places to minister. There's the uh, agalos, um, which is the one we often have translated to angel or ministering spirit. Um, but it can be a messenger of any description. That's one type of minister that we have. Apostolos, which is one sent forth or a delegate. And again, you can detect from the word, uh, that's where we get the name apostle from, another type of minister. There's the word diakonos, who is one who executes the commands of another. And it's the word that we derive from uh, to get deacon, uh, diakonos, in another type of minister. And Letogorus, which is a public minister, um, or typically a servant of the state, in the context we find it's someone often who serves in the temple or so on. And it's actually the word that we get liturgy from as well, uh, by the way. And then the, the final one, uh, huberetes, which is the, the term means under rower. Now you think of a Roman galley, and typically from pictures you've seen, there was a top deck and then there was a lower deck. Uh, sometimes there could have even been three, but the under deck was where the under rowers would be. It was dark, it was damp, typically it would be kind of a bit waterlogged as well. A horrible place to be, a really horrible place. And it was kind of the lowest of the low servants would be in that place. Uh, but it's another word that's used for somebody who ministers, who serves in that kind of way. And interestingly, that's the word that Mark uses to refer to himself, an under rower. He placed himself at the bottom. And it may be because of these accounts and these things we've looked at, the fact that he started with great intentions. You know, he, he witnessed this incredible miracle of Peter being released from prison. And, and if indeed it was him in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, seeing those things firsthand and knowing that Jesus was risen from the dead. And I'm sure that Mark would have been of that group that we read about that in the book of Acts, that not just the disciples, but there was many that were gathered together that had been witnesses of those things, um, particularly at the time that they, they appoint a replacement for Judas. Not just the 12 disciples or the 11 disciples at that point. Um, there's many others uh, that have been part of that group. And I'm sure Mark, by this time, was there. You know, and Mark, to use this kind of almost derogatory term of himself, I think is quite interesting that he doesn't see himself as uh, trying to elevate himself at all, but just sees himself in this, this, this position, and yet recognizes that he has a ministry. And I think that's interesting. Now, there's also a, a really fascinating connection between Mark and Peter, because we'll find that Peter actually calls Mark his son in the faith. Now, this suggests that Peter had been personally involved in Mark's conversion to Christianity. Certainly, we know they had met because... Peter goes to Mark's house 
or to Mark's mum's house where, where Mark still was, uh, at that time he's released from prison that we looked at already. Now, this is interesting because what we seemingly have here is the a gospel account, by all intents and purposes, from Peter. Now, what we do know is that Mark had accompanied Peter to Babylon. Some people think that's a, a, a veiled reference to Rome. I don't think there's any biblical justification or basis for that. Um, there's no suggestion that Rome uh, was ever called Babylon at this particular time in history. Uh, in fact, when you talk to the, the church, when Peter addresses, um, uh, talk, thinks about the, um, um, the church at Babylon, uh, and the believers there. It's, if that was a reference to Rome, it's a very derogatory reference to the Christians who were in that place. Um, so it doesn't seem to, to follow. And of course, what we do know from history is that after the, the captivity, many Christians, or sorry, many Jews, or actually many Jews, chose to remain in Babylon. And so the church, as it starts to spread out from originally Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, it's quite understandable to find that there's a strong Christian community in Babylon. And Peter, again, being this uh, apostle to the Jews, going to those who have been dispersed, and seemingly spends this time with his, these Christians in Babylon. It's there uh, that we find that Mark has accompanied Peter. And I think that what we get is this situation that whilst there, Peter has this opportunity to spend time encouraging, discipling Mark. So what's often proposed is that the gospel of Mark is the gospel according to Peter. And in many respects, that's true. Mark acting as his amanuensis, or kind of secretary in that sense. Now, it is true that Peter's the first apostle that's mentioned. He's also the last apostle mentioned in the gospel of Mark. But I think more than just this being Peter's gospel that Mark wrote out, I don't think that's the case. I think this is clearly Mark's testimony. But it's based on the first-hand experience of Peter. You know, it's kind of a picture, if you will. Peter, uh, Mark sat at Peter's feet, eagerly asking questions about his experience, his life with Jesus, about all the things that he'd witnessed, and then scribbling down all these notes. And I think that, that what we find here then is that Mark collates all this information, puts it into this gospel, because again, as I said, I think Mark is so overwhelmed with the person of Jesus that he just wants to share this with other people. And I think this is why later on, Peter, sorry, uh, Paul says, bring Mark. Because by this point, Mark has written his gospel. By the time that Peter, uh, sorry, by the time that Paul makes that comment when he's in Rome. And the gospel of Mark is a very powerful gospel, particularly to the Gentiles. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. So, again, I think that Mark was just so overwhelmed that he wants to tell the world about Jesus. And so records all these things, and he's asking Peter, so what happened then? And then what happened? And so, so what did Jesus do then? And just, just so excited. You know, I, I can't help thinking, you know, as you know, we've now got four daughters. Um, and one of them stands out often to me um, because she's just relentless, and that's Connie. She's beautiful. I love her. She's just, just incredible. But she just does not stop. And I kind of get the feeling that Mark's a little bit like that. That Mark's just so full of energy and so excited. And we see that in the way that he writes. We'll comment a bit more about that in a moment. But I just get the impression that he's just one of those characters that is just always on the go, always excited about things. And certainly in regard to Jesus. In a commentary by James Fawcett and Brown, and they say this, but as to his gospel, the tradition regarding Peter's hand in it is so ancient, so uniform, and so remarkably confirmed by internal evidence that we must regard it as an established fact. Mark says Papias, sorry, uh, yes, so Mark says Papias according to the testimony of Eusebius. So again, just underlining that this is, in a sense, very much Peter's eyewitness account that Mark is recording for us. Albert Barnes says this, he was the first companion of Paul and Barnabas in their journeys to propagate Christianity in Acts 12 and 13 and 15. He chose not to attend them through the whole journey, but left them in Pamphylia and probably returned to Jerusalem, Acts 15, 38. Probably at this time, he was the companion of Peter and traveled with him to Babylon. And afterward, he went with Barnabas to Cyprus. Subsequently, he went to Rome at the express desire of Paul in company with Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 11. And he remained at Rome 
while Paul was captive there. How long is uncertain. References to Colossians and Philemon. And from Eusebius, Epiphanius uh, and Jerome, we hear that Mark went from Rome to Alexandria in Egypt where he planted a church and died uh, in the eighth year of the reign of Nero. That's what we have from church history regarding this individual. Okay. As regard the time of writing, well, I'll read you a couple of quotes. Um, in fact, let's read first, and then I'll, I'll add some comments. This is again from Albert Barnes. He says, probably at this time he was... Uh, uh, sorry, no, that's the one we've uh, read. Okay, so the time when this gospel was written is not certainly known. It is supposed to have been between the years 56 to 63 AD. It is allowed uh, by all that it was written at Rome. Now, again, it may have been. But I, no, there's no evidence to suggest that. That's just an assumption. And I can't help feeling that it was at that time in Babylon when Mark and Peter were together that this was written prior to Paul's visit to, uh, prior to Mark's visit to Paul in Rome. And I think that is why Mark makes it, uh, Paul makes this comment about Mark being useful because of what he's written. It's like, come along, uh, uh, bring your book with you. It just seems to be the, it just makes so much sense to me. It says, of course, it was during the latter years of his life after the apostles had left Judea. Well, that's certainly we would agree with. Uh, Mark 16.20's corroboration for that. Uh, Mark was for a considerable time the companion of Peter, uh, though he had not himself been with the Savior in his ministry. Well, again, maybe, maybe not. Yet, from his long acquaintance with Peter, he was familiar with the events in his life uh, and his instructions. So, and you'll find that others make, uh, again, Jemison, Fawcett, and Brown, um, it makes this, uh, it was not for the Gentiles, this gospel is evident from a great number of explanations of Jewish usages, opinions, and places, which to a Jew would at that time have been superfluous, but were highly needful to a Gentile. Uh, so we can, and there's a list of these things, so you can look at those at your leisure. So, now, typically critics will tell us that the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're very similar in their structure and the details they record were written way after what they call the eyewitness period. So people that actually saw the events, they're saying they were long dead, and critics will even suggest that anything up to 200 years later that these Gospels were written, um, and by individuals who we just don't know who they are. Uh, of course, that, that doesn't scan with any of the facts that we have. Um, these seem to be, in every regard, eyewitness accounts of people that really were there, that saw these events. And of course, now... The critic's arguments is completely destroyed because we've got a couple of books normally we have at the back because of the uh, exhibition or the conference yesterday we haven't. But both in the Gospels Part 1 by Bill Cooper uh, and in the uh, New Testament Fragments Among the Dead Sea Scrolls, what Bill Cooper points out is that in Qumran, the cave there, were found in Cave 7 a number of fragments of Mark's Gospel. Now that cave was sealed up in 68 A.D., so we know for a fact that Mark's gospel was written before that time. Furthermore, we don't just have fragments, but we have commentaries, fragments from commentaries about Mark's gospel. Now, just think about that. For the gospel to have been written enough for it to then be copied and circulated so that people could then write commentaries on it, this was written very early and quite probably within two to three years of the resurrection. Um, so these really are first-hand accounts, eyewitness accounts of things um, that uh, can very easily be uh, verified and substantiated. So if you want to look into that, certainly the, the New Testament fragments among the Dead Sea Scrolls is a really good book just to underline and show how stupid the comments of the critics really are. So it does seem to be that the gospel was written for a Gentile audience uh, primarily. Um, there's a couple of references we've got, and one clearly uh, is in Mark 12:42, where Mark talks about a mite and then explains what that is, effectively equivalent to a farthing. Okay, So there's no need to explain that to a Jewish audience. They'd have understood. And there's a number of those situations. So Mark writing this... Seemingly, it has to be after the, the church is dispersed. And again, that's why I think Babylon is, a, is an ideal uh, place for this to, to have been written. Uh, and then obviously starts to spread uh, abroad amongst the early church. And Paul being in Rome in prison, asking Mark to come, because this was such a great handbook, in a sense, 
to pass to somebody who we were trying to introduce to Christianity because it gives us such a great uh, overview of all these things. That's what we've uh, said already. All right, now just the, the good news that Mark gives us, just going back to that point I was making about the way that Mark presents this, it is fast-paced. It's almost like he's taking lots of little photographs uh, and just giving us the snapshots, these kind of key details. There are details recorded here that we don't find in the other Gospels. Uh, and again, particularly the, the timings regarding Passion Week. Mark is great to give us that information so that we were left without any doubt when those things actually occurred. Mark kind of just gives us the facts. Now, one of the most common words we find in Mark's Gospel is this word, straight away or immediately. Um, we just get this throughout the gospel, 42 times that occurs. It's only found a handful of times through the rest of the whole New Testament. And again, it's suggested that Peter and Mark sought to assist Paul's case in Rome uh, and giving this, uh, this document designed very much for a Gentile audience would have done that. Uh, again, we see that Jewish customs are explained. Uh, Romans are often portrayed in a positive light. And there's a number of other these kind of things we see. But when we actually look at the opening chapter... This is what we see. We get the miracle of fulfilled prophecy, the miracle of forgiveness of sin, the miracle of Jesus Christ, the miracle of the Holy Spirit. We get the baptism of Jesus, the temptation in the wilderness, the imprisonment of John, the teaching and message of Jesus. We get the calling of the disciples. We get the authority of Jesus over the scribes and the Pharisees and over the religious leaders of the day. We get the authority of Jesus being seen over demons. We get the authority of Jesus over sickness. We get the authority of Jesus over the impossible. And Mark records all of that in just these 45 verses of chapter 1. There's so much crammed in here. And this is why I say this is just, a, not, just, just on fire, wanting to communicate these incredible things. Now, we have looked at this before when we did our study through Matthew's Gospel a few years ago. We went through this. It's in the slides or on the website. But you see an incredible um, parallel, an idea of design going through all the Gospels. And I'll leave this slide. I'm not going to go through the details of it now. Um, but Mark seemingly does present Jesus as a servant. Matthew certainly presents Jesus as the Messiah, as the King of Israel. Luke presents Jesus as the Son of Man. And John presents Jesus as the Son of God. Now, it's interesting because when you read Ezekiel and so on, you'll find that we have these cherubim that have these four faces. We have a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. And it seems to be exactly what's presented in the Gospels. Matthew presents Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Mark presents Jesus as a servant, like an ox, a beast of burden. Luke presents Jesus as the son of man. Of course, John presents Jesus as the son of God, soaring above everything. And there's a number of other things we can draw. But clearly between the Gospels, there really is design. We've got one account from four different angles, just like we have with the cherubim, with their faces. They are representative and, and pictures of Jesus. I think it's interesting as well that the cherubim were designed, created to reflect Christ's glory in their outward appearance. But you know what? We are created to reflect his glory in the inward man. What a privilege that is for us. Okay, let's jump into the text. The beginning, of the gospel, the good news. That's what the word gospel means. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What a bold statement just to start with. He's declaring straight away to anybody that's going to open this book that he's written that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, not any old god. The Romans believed in various gods and they believed that those gods that have various offspring and so on. But now this is the son of the one and only God. And this is who Jesus Christ is. And it says, he doesn't just leave it at that. There's a little bit of apologetic going on here because he says, as it is written in the prophets. So he's not just saying that Jesus is the son of God, that's what I think. But he's saying, this has been proven now because of the prophecies that have now been fulfilled. That it was written hundreds of years ago of whom Jesus is. And we have this quote, first of all, from Malachi, Behold, I will send my messenger before thy face. Now this is speaking of John the Baptist, we'll talk about it in a moment. Which shall prepare thy way before thee. 
And then from Isaiah 41, verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now clearly Mark has got some understanding of the Old Testament, of these prophecies. And really I think what he's saying here is, look, this is incredible. This is the good news about Jesus and it's fulfilling everything that the prophets said was going to happen because the prophets said that there was going to be somebody who would come before the Messiah that would prepare his way. Well, guess what? That's exactly what happened. Because John came and he says, John did baptize in the wilderness. He's just confirming this prophecy and saying that that's what the prophet said of the one who was coming, the Messiah. And guess what? John came and showed us that Jesus is the Messiah. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. I mean, that's a staggering concept for people at this time in history that are first reading this. And really, it should be for us as well. You know, the problem that every other religion has is the problem of sin. I've had this conversation with the Muslims at work a number of times. You know, the real issue is sin. What do you do with sin? You know, Islam has no mechanism for dealing with sin. They supposedly have a God that if you do certain things, will just ignore or wipe away your sin. But there's no explanation as to how that happens. That makes him unjust. If a Muslim is to die as part of a holy war, they are supposedly promised paradise. Well, okay, but what about their sin? Because if their God just ignores their sin, it makes him unjust. Every religion on the, the, the face of the planet, every philosophy of man has this one nagging little issue, and that's the issue of sin. Christianity is the only place where you go and find an answer to that problem. And the answer to the problem of sin is that Christ came and took our sin upon himself, satisfying God's righteous judgment so that God is justified in judging sin. But we are set free because it was all taken and placed upon Christ for us. So John comes with this baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And we'll come back to this idea of baptism in a second. But we told and they went out unto him all the land of Judea, and they of Jerusalem all were baptized of him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now this, I think, is interesting as well. It's very easy for us to kind of read this, but I want to try and help us to almost be there and live these things as we go through this gospel. You know, as you're aware, rivers don't flow on the top of mountains. Jerusalem is a mountain. The Jordan was down in the valley. And so the people that were heading there from Judea and around about the place and from Jerusalem had to make a potentially up to a 20-mile journey to get down there. It wasn't an easy trek necessarily. This was a real effort to go from Jerusalem to climb down from this mountainous region. And of course, Abraham takes... Isaac, and they go to the top of Mount Moriah. This is where Jerusalem is located. But they, they make this journey down to the River Jordan because they've heard about this man, about John the Baptist. And we, we're familiar with that title, John the Baptist. But what does Baptist mean? Now, what does baptize mean? Of course, there's lots of debates within the, uh, the Christian church, and it has been for a number of years, centuries, uh, over baptism. And of course, we would very much subscribe to the idea of immersion in water. But do you know where the idea came from? It actually goes back to about 500 years before the time of John. And the word baptized is a word that was used in connection with taking a garment and dipping it into some form of dye to transform it, to change it into something else. And typically, the people that did that were known as Baptists. So if you would take a garment and, and dye it and so on, you became as known as whatever, the Baptist. And John is given this title that we, we typically know, John the Baptist. Because he was taking people. And this idea of baptism wasn't something that was common in Israel. 
in this context of people being baptized. But you get an idea of what baptism really is all about. That it's being placed in the water, but you're coming up something other than you went in. You've been transformed, you've been changed. Now, of course, it's really a hard thing with baptism. And we understand, of course, the New Testament it likens it and explains that it's like being buried with Christ. And when we rise, we rise to new life. That old life has gone and a new life has begun. That's why we carry on this idea of baptism. But when you understand this idea of the garment and the changing of color and so on, you realize that the whole idea is a total change of lifestyle, changing of the way that we are. Again, for the remission of sins. This is the whole purpose of what John was doing, preparing the way for the Messiah to come. And verse 6 says, And John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of skin about his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey. Now, this is a man that has given up the comforts of life, I think you'll agree. I'm not sure how comfortable camel's hair is to wear. I have had the opportunity to ride on a camel. Um, I'm not sure I'd want particularly a camel's hair uh, undergarment, um, but this is what this this individual is uh, effectively wearing. This kind of clothing now, eating locusts and wild honey, and some people will try and suggest that he was eating carobs or other things. But it's very clear from the text that he was just out there, just living on whatever came to him, and typically locusts and honey and so on. You know, real no connection with this world in that sense. You know, he came, he had a mission to accomplish. That's what he wanted to do. You know, and this is exactly what was prophesied. And remember, this is what Mark is saying. He's recording this. He's saying, you know, that the prophet said that one was going to come. He was going to be the one that would prepare the way for the Messiah. And look, this is John. People knew about John. This was a very famous individual that had later been put to death by Herod. We'll see that. But I'm preaching saying, there cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. You do a lovely study on shoes, actually, if you go through Scripture, and you'll see that it's linked, tied up very much with authority. John's just saying, I'm not, I don't have the authority. I'm not worthy to come and undo the shoes of the one who is coming, of the Messiah. Again, John preparing the way, and Mark here just highlighting this point. Everybody had known about John this Baptist. And John said this, I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. So we're now introduced to the Holy Spirit. Now Mark doesn't take a lot of time explaining or detailing to us anything about the Holy Spirit at this point, but it's just another thing that he's throwing in here. We have the the Trinity, Trinity introduced to us in these first eight verses. Of course, God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And verse 9, and it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Interesting that, 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 that Mark records that point. Because Nazareth wasn't seen to be a place that anything good would come out of. Know that. But we're told, and was baptized of John in Jordan. You know, there's a, a debate then that takes place. Because John doesn't want to be uh, baptizing Jesus. He says it should be the other way around. But really, baptism is very much about being changed from one thing to another. It's being changed from our purpose, our design for life, to God's purpose and God's design. And Jesus, of course, identifies himself here with our sin and is baptized because of that. But also, it's that submission to his Father's will that we see. And then we read, and straight away, another one of these straightaways, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the spirit of the dove descending upon him. It's lovely here because, you know, we've got that dove we encounter in the book of Genesis. You know, doves often associated with peace. And where does it symbolically here come and rest upon Jesus? That's the place of peace. That's the place that the Spirit, like a dove, descends upon him. That's where we find peace, in Jesus. And there came a voice from heaven saying, because Jesus was willing 
to submit to the will of his father. By being baptized, effectively is giving up his right to his own life, as it were. Acknowledging his father's will. But his father says, thou art my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. Now, this is on record. You know, there were a lot of people around. Now, we don't know if Peter was an eyewitness, but we know that there were many people that would have seen, that recorded these things. This is what John, of course, firsthand would have given us. Mark makes the point then of recording this. This is a great testimony that people heard God speaking. Oh, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. You know, suddenly if you're a skeptic and God speaks in front of you, that's going to stop you being a skeptic anymore. Another immediately, just straight away, John now, John Mark moving on. And immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Again, he's he's creating this this lovely picture of, of who Jesus is, showing that Jesus really is the Messiah. He's the one that was prophesied. John the Baptist has proven that to be the case, effectively, he's saying. And now immediately the Spirit drives him into the wilderness and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan and was with the beasts and the angels ministered unto him. Mark's just relaying this as an account, not trying to justify it or explain it, but just simply saying, look, this is what happened. You know, all of these things would be challenged if there weren't eyewitnesses to corroborate them. It doesn't give us any other details. It then goes, now... After John was put in prison, now he's just jumped forward a year in Jesus' ministry. You know, he's just seemingly highlighting all the, the key points that he wants to try and communicate at this point. Now, after John was put in prison, uh, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent you and believe the good news. Believe the gospel. That's the, the gospel of the kingdom. That's the same gospel that will be preached in the end times. After the church is taken out, the gospel that will be preached will be repent because the kingdom is at hand. Do you know we have a different gospel that we preach now? We preach the gospel of the grace of God. We preach that gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ for whomsoever is willing to accept. It's not repent for the kingdom is at hand. It's repent because salvation is available to you now. Now is the day of salvation. Verse 16, now as he walks by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew his brother casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And they said unto them, come, you after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straight away they forsook their nets and followed him. I mean, Mark again, just recording this, how Simon Peter, Peter, his friend, his mentor, and Andrew were busy doing their day job. And suddenly Jesus, this incredible individual who steps into the, the world scene at this point, and for 30 years of his life has kind of lived in pretty much obscurity, but suddenly steps onto the scene. John baptizes him and we see his declaration that he is the son of God, that God is pleased with him. That temptation in the wilderness and, and then here. Jesus simply says to these young men, come, come you after me and I will make you become fishers of men. And straight away, suck the nets and follow them. I mean, that on its own is you imagine Mark sitting and talking to Peter. And Mark said, Peter, why? What was, it, what was it that made you just quit your day job and follow after Jesus? And probably Peter saying, I don't know. There was just something about him. The way he spoke. And when he got a little further, thence he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the ship mending their nets. And straight away he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after them. Now these are people that are relatively well off because they've got hired servants in their little family fishing business. And these other two are, are now called. Again, just imagine Mark sitting there one evening, I think probably in Babylon with Peter. 
wherever they were together, just, just asking, so how did you guys all start following Jesus? He just called us. And we went. They didn't have all the answers to all the questions. They didn't have any theology degrees. You know, some of the disciples we, we know were quite well versed in the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus called them and they went. They didn't leave because of any promise of reward. They didn't go after Jesus because it was going to further their career in any way. They just seemingly recognized that there was something very special, very wonderful about Jesus. And they were willing to abandon all and follow him. A great song by Stephen Curtis Chapman called For the Sake of the Call. And it was just simply because they were called. They were called by Jesus. And they left everything and followed him. I think that would be a, a great place to leave it this morning. Verse 20. We'll pick up from there next week. But, you know, we've had that call. And it's not because of what awaits us necessarily. It's not because of the rewards, although Scripture speaks clearly about rewards that we'll receive. It's not because of the blessings that we'll get in this life. It's not because of the exceedingly great and precious promises. Mark seems to be just highlighting the point here that they left and followed simply because it was Jesus who called. And our challenge this morning is why are we following Jesus? Is it just simply because of who he is? The, the point I think Mark is trying to communicate in these opening verses is that Jesus is God. God in the flesh come down to this earth. And he calls. Let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time this morning just to start to look at this account that Mark gives us. Father, we thank you for Mark, for his willingness to record these things, that we have such a great testimony. Thank you, Lord, for what seems to be this great enthusiasm he has, this desire just to communicate this good news that Jesus Christ came into this world. That, Father, you acknowledged and declared that you were pleased with him because he had come to do your will. John the Baptist confirmed who he was. So we're in no doubt that this is Jesus the Messiah. And Jesus the Messiah has called each one of us by name. Oh Lord, what is our response? Lord, I pray you stir our hearts. And if we've set about following you for any other reason than simply because of who you are, challenge us this morning. Lord, we do thank you for the promises. We thank you for the rewards. We thank you for the wonderful eternity that awaits us. But Jesus, we don't want to focus on those things and lose sight of who you are. Jesus, we want to follow you because you are God. You've called us by name. Stir our hearts, Lord, and bless us as we continue this study, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. May God richly bless you as you walk with Jesus through this week.